You can keep your Bibles at Habakkuk chapter 3. As we come to the third and final chapter of Habakkuk. Now remember that Habakkuk lives in this time of the nation of Judah. Uh, during the time when the king and all the people, or many of the people, were not following the Lord. Instead, they were following the pagan gods, worshipping them, uh, taking advantage of the poor and the needy. Injustice is all rampant, so Habakkuk asks God, why? You know, why is it this way? You know, when will you actually act on behalf of your people? And we see that God then has given the most shocking reply, that he will deal with the injustice that, that Habakkuk can see around him in, in Israel. But the thing is that he's going to do it by using the Babylonians, by using an even more unjust people, a worse people, to deal with the violence. And Habakkuk can't understand of how can, how can you use this people that is even worse against God's covenant people? And the Lord answers this accusation by giving him a vision, a vision for all the ages that judgment is coming. That judgment is coming and God's enemies shall be destroyed, the Babylonians and all to come afterwards. And the Lord's response in chapter 2 ends this way. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. See, this verse is the climax of the response God gives. The Lord is in his temple. He is on the throne. He works out all things according to his purposes. And what can our response be? It is like when when we see in the book of Job, when the Lord responds to Job and the many things that have been said, and he responds saying, where were you when I lay the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have the understanding. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out? And have you commanded the morning since your days began? And cause the dawn to know its place. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? You know, what can we, mere creatures, say when we come before such an amazing, powerful, and awesome being, the creator of all things. And as we come to chapter 3 here, we see that Habakkuk has heard the vision, he has pondered its message, and his attitude has changed. It is now altogether different than we saw in the first chapter. Now before we you know, get into the sermon, please pray with me. O oh Lord, we pray this evening that you may speak. We come needy and desperate to hear your voice. Not the voice of man, but the voice of God. So we pray this evening that you may speak by your spirit. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Now, seeing is believing. That is a phrase that we probably have heard, that we probably understand, that to see is to believe. You know, we don't have to question the things that we see. You know, I just know that they're true. You know, I know that you have these pews in front of me and the camera uh, back there that we see. And, and this is how we may describe the Apostle Thomas after the resurrection of Christ. Because after the resurrection of Christ, we see him appear to all the apostles except for Thomas. And all the apostles come and they tell Thomas that they have seen the Lord, that he is risen again, that he showed himself to them, and he cannot believe. He says, unless I see the very holes from the crucifixion nails in the hands of Jesus, unless I see the hole in his side made by the spear, I cannot believe. I cannot believe. See, he needs to see in order to believe. And our Savior was gracious enough to appear to Thomas to show himself so that Thomas may believe. Now, our, our, our senses, they play a vital and essential role in everyday life, in the way that we go about everyday business, do they not? As we hear, and we see, and we feel, and we taste, and we smell. You know, the sight of, of an oasis in the desert, of hearing the word of God preached, of feeling the embrace of a friend, of, of smelling that delicious meal that we've just made, or that smell of coffee in the morning. Rise, you've gotten out of bed. The, the senses truly make and shape our reality, our day-to-day lives. But there's more to us than just our senses. For Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. For if we were limited to our sight, if we were limited to our present circumstances, and that all that there is is to look on is the suffering and the pain that we're experiencing in any given moment, then what hope is there? What hope is there if all that there is that we have to look on is the present circumstances? But God has given us more than just our senses that we may set our inner eyes, that we may set the eyes of our soul, you know, our faith on something else. On God. So the message this evening in Habakkuk 3 for us is to look to God. To look to God. And in this, uh, in this chapter, we're gonna look to God first in the past. And then second in the present. And then third in the future. So first then, uh, to look to God in the past, we see God's presence and God's deliverance. So, let us see God's presence in verses 3 and, chapter, and, and verses 4. In the first few verses of Habakkuk's response here, we see Habakkuk describing God, of what he is like. So we see him say that he came from Timon, from Mount Paran. And these are references to the Exodus that we, that we see in the book of Exodus. You know, he gives an image here of God, of his, of his splendor covering the heavens, brightness like the light, rays from his hand. 
And this imagery here reminds us of the Lord appearing on Mount Sinai. You remember the scene of the people standing at the bottom of the mountain with the Lord coming down on the top of the mountain. And they're all terrified. And they see the thick clouds and the thundering and the earthquakes and and the people tremble. They're terrified. They hear the great voice and they dare not get any closer lest they should die. They got a taste that day of the majesty of the Lord, of his might and of his power. They experienced the presence of the Lord and they were awestruck. And Habakkuk is painting this picture for us of who the Lord is, you know, making use of these words here to bring us back to Mount Sinai, to remind himself, his hearers, and us of the majesty of the Lord. You know, it is so easy to focus on the problem in front of us, on the challenge, on the tribulation in front of us, that nothing may seem possible. That there's no way out, there's no escape. And the longer we stare at our circumstances, the larger they seem. The obstacle just grows and gets darker. So Habakkuk is trying to get us to look away from our circumstances, not to ignore them, but not to make them larger than they actually are. Instead, he wants us to focus most of all on the Lord, to look to God whose splendor covered the heavens, whose brightness is like the light from whose hands rays flash forth. And I've heard it preached that when confronted with a love, an illicit love, a sinful love, be it love of money, of lust, money, pride, or whatever it may be, the only thing that can conquer that love is a greater love. It's a greater love. The greater love of Jesus is what is necessary and needed to dethrone this love of sin. And similarly here, I think, when confronted with the most dreadful and terrible circumstance, you need something, or rather someone, who is greater than what you're facing. And we see Jesus in the gospel say, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So what is he saying there? Well, there's something greater, something worse than dying, than our our body being slain. Whatever we face on this earth, what is the worst thing that can happen? What is the worst thing? Well, we may die. We will die, but there is actually something worse. It is to die a sinner, having rejected Jesus and thus facing his judgment, his just and right judgment of body and soul at the day of judgment. So what what, what comfort may we draw from looking to God in the past as we see his presence? When God's presence With his people, we see God. We see who he is. We see what he is capable of. See, we need to have a high view of God. A view that sees a big God, a God in whose hands is all the might and all the power. Able to do far more 
than whatever we can think or ask or even imagine. And then next we, we move on and we see now God's uh, deliverance. And if you would, would look at verses 5 through 15. See, in verse 5, we see the beginnings of judgment. We see the pestilence and the plague that reminds us of the exodus. And of the time when, uh, when God appeared and Pharaoh would not let his people go. He refused, so as a consequence, God was brought the ten plagues to the people uh, of Egypt to make them release the Hebrews, the people of Israel, to leave. In verse 6, we see then the shaking of nations, the eternal mountains being scattered, and these are images of terrible judgment as even the, the firmest of things. You know, what's the most stable thing we can think of? The mountains, perhaps one of them, they are shook. They cannot stand. And in verse 7, he speaks of Cushan and Midian, these enemies of God's people, as they headed into the promised land. In verse 8, he speaks about the rivers and the sea, asking, was God's wrath against them? Here, he's alluding to God's power that we saw with the Nile River and the plagues of Egypt as it turned into blood. Of the power displayed at the Red Sea as God's people were stuck with the pharaohs coming down with their chariots to slay the people of God. And God parts the way that they can go through being saved with the waters coming down on the Egyptians. And also of the River Jordan as God's people pass into the promised land. These are mighty acts that demonstrate the power of God. Verse 10, we see more mountains you know, writhing. How great is God's judgment? And we see the mountains, again, the most constant thing we can think of are struck here. Verse 11 goes even beyond that. It speaks of the sun and the moon standing still, which here alludes to Joshua chapter 10 where God allows for the sun and the moon to stand still in order that Joshua may have enough daylight to execute God's judgment on the enemies of God. So the mountains cannot stand before the Lord, and now we see even the sun and the moon obey our Lord. So how great is the power of God? Well, it is far greater than we can understand. And by his power... He brings forth judgment, just judgment on the nations. Look at verse 12. The sin and the wickedness of the earth and the nations are all dealt with. But the question is, you know, why? You know, why does God go forth to execute this judgment? You know, what is the reason behind it? And what we see emphasized here in Habakkuk 3 is that he does it for his people. He does it for his people. Because in verse 8, when he speaks of the parting of the Red Sea, we get this image, don't we not? Do we not? Of chariot of salvation. See, this is an image, it's a clear picture of God saving his people from the Egyptians. You see, one of the most dreaded weapon, piece of weaponry that the Egyptians had was the chariot. They'd be coming down towards the Israelites. And here we get the image of the Lord coming on a chariot. Not to destroy them, but to deliver them. 
In verse 13, right after having said that God judged the nations, Habakkuk says that God went out for the salvation of his people. That is the reason that he did this. So as we look to God and we look to him in the past, we see his presence, we see his deliverance. Well, you may say, that's great that he did those things before, but how can we be sure about his presence and his deliverance today? See, Malachi 3 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. The Lord does not change. James 1 says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. See, our God is a never-changing God. He always remains the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And therefore, we can look to God in the past and have confidence for today. We can look to Scripture, as Habakkuk has done here, to, to remind himself and us of God's majesty and mighty acts. But you can also look into your own life. Can you not? Of the mercy that God showed you when he saved you. You can see the, the power of God as he, through however long you have walked with Jesus, he has been there. He has worked things out. And you can look back and you can see that. And you may use that as a, uh, as comfort. So, and even the hymn that we will sing in a few minutes at the end of this, of the sermon, I hope even that will be an encouragement as we look and think about God's mighty acts in the past. So look to God in the past, and then second, look to God in the present. Uh, if you would, look at verse 16. So we see here that Habakkuk, Habakkuk says, I hear. Uh, but what is it that he hears? What he hears is the prophecy that God has given in the previous chapter of the coming of the Babylonians and the destruction of Israel. So he trembles. His lips quiver. He gives the picture of, of rottenness entering into his bones. His legs tremble. That he does not pretend that everything is okay. That everything is fine. You know, when, when someone asks you, how are you doing? And it doesn't matter if it's the worst day in your life. You'll say, oh, I'm fine. I'm good. Isn't that true? Isn't that what we do? You see, we as Christians, we should not act as if everything is perfect, as if everything is great, as if nothing is ever wrong. Sometimes we can feel that pressure, isn't it, as we want to be uh, a witness to Christ, of, of showing, yes, Jesus is amazing, look how great life is. But instead, I think it's, it's an even greater witness when you may say, you know, things are not great. But Jesus is mine. But he is with me. He loves me. 
You know, we do not need to smile every day to pretend everything is okay. See, the Christian faith, it recognizes great pain in this life. But it also speaks of a great hope. See, do we have a great hope in Christ? Well, yes, we do. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ is what gives us that hope, what gives us that joy, but it does not negate the many things that we must endure here. It does not negate the circumstances, remove them that we find ourselves in. So Habakkuk trembles and his lips quiver. See, when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says a part of his writing is that they may not grieve as others do who have no hope. See, it doesn't say not to grieve, but it rather to grieve, or rather not to grieve as those who have no hope. So Christians grieve. But we do it differently. We do it with hope, with confidence. We wait, as Habakkuk says, as Habakkuk says and does. He knows dark days are ahead of him. Yet he waits trusting in the Lord that God's plan is good and that God will be his comfort. So may we look to God in the past, may we look to God in the present, and thirdly, may we look to God in the future. If you would look at verses 17 to 19. See, Habakkuk here gives us a picture and a glimpse of the future, a dark and dreary future in which the tree does not blossom, where there's no fruit on the vines, no produce of the olive, and no food in the fields. The flocks will be cut off. There will be no herds. See, what is the worst picture you could give? Well, that's what Habakkuk is giving us right here. It's a picture of utter and total famine. You know, give us our daily bread. We pray in the Lord's Prayer. And yet the picture here is the absence of this daily bread. See, it's difficult for us living here in Edinburgh. I think to, to really grasp the severity of this situation. We've never experienced anything close to it of utter desolation. See, Habakkuk has been given a most dreaded vision by God. And here, Habakkuk gives the worst case scenario. And what does he say? What will Habakkuk's response be to this disaster? He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He will rejoice. But how? How can he rejoice when there's nothing to eat? When there's no bread that awaits him? Well, it is because he has bread. He doesn't have the earthly bread, but he has the eternal bread. He has the bread of life. You see, the Lord is, Habakkuk says, the God of his salvation. Let goods and kindred go. Martin Luther wrote, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. But God's truth abided still. His kingdom is forever. And isn't this what Habakkuk is saying here? Habakkuk is not like the people that we see in the Gospels who, who sought out Jesus after feeding the 5,000 who weren't really looking for Jesus. 
They weren't looking for the gospel. They were just looking for, for more bread. You know, see, Habakkuk seeks for the one who multiplied the bread. Not the bread itself, but the one who, uh, who made it. Who is the bread of life. Who has saved him body and soul. Because even if he would die, the worst thing imaginable, even this would bring him to God, to Jesus Christ. And the day is to come when he will be given a new body in the place where the fig tree shall forever blossom. The vines be full of fruit. The produce of all of his fields and herds never fail, but always be abundant. And what shall Habakkuk's strength be? It will be the Lord. It will not be his own strength, whatever he might be able to, to muster up. What kind of strength would one have on a day like that, in a time like that? But the Lord will hold him up. Now the well-known hymn, It Is Well, With My Soul, was written by Horatio Spafford. You know, he knew pain and suffering. Having lost much money, having lost a son, and uh, there was a time they were living in, in the U.S. and decided to go on holiday uh, here in the UK. And uh, he had work that he had to finish before going, so he sent his wife and four daughters ahead of him before he was going to go to meet them. But what happened was that the ship sunk. The wife made it, but all the daughters perished and, and, and um, you know, they did not make it. And it was on his own trip, going to England, that he, that he wrote you know, this well-known hymn. As, as he wrote the words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well. It is well with my soul. And this evening, is it well with your soul? That's the question to ask this evening because the answer is of utmost importance. You know, there are those who profess to preach Christ, who speaks about how Jesus will fix all their life problems. He will fix the money situation. He will fix your confidence issue. He will fix your marriage. But there is no such promise. Habakkuk had a promise here, not of plenty, but of devastation. He had a promise that all would be taken away from him. And if this was to be your lot, my lot, would we still rejoice in the Lord? Would we sing, even so it is well with my soul? So may we look to God in the past, in the present, and in the future. See, today and in the days ahead, we are we're urged, we're called to, to look to God, to look to Him in the past, to see His presence, to see His deliverance of His people through the ages. You consider how He has done mighty and marvelous works in your own life. And we to look in the present and see that God is calling us not to pretend that everything is fine, that everything is perfect and okay, that it is okay to fear and to struggle and to look to Him in grief and in suffering. 
and then to look to him in the future because we do not know what the future will hold. Chronic illness, unexpected death, utter devastation, but whatever may come, the Lord will be our strength. See, we don't have to stand on our own two feet because surely we would fall and not be able to get up. But you will have his strength. You will have him holding you up, whatever awaits, no matter what befalls you. The Lord himself is your rock. He is yours. He is your strength. He is your chariot of salvation. His splendor and his brightness go before you. As the prophecy in Revelation says, on the day of Jesus' return, in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no need for sun or moon, for the glory of God will give it light. The Lamb himself, Jesus Christ being its light. So may you, dear Christian, behold your God. To see him, to see your king, to see his might, his power, to see his love, his desire for you. This evening and all the days that are to come until Jesus will return. And if you're not a Christian, well, this, the question is the same for you. Is it well with your soul? You know, do you sense the turmoil within you? Can you withstand suffering like this? Can you face it on your own? Well, why don't you come to Christ? Why not come to Christ who will uphold you? Come to Christ who will be your strength. You come to Christ who bids you only come. That is all he asks. And we finish by praying with Horatio Spafford, O Lord, haste the day. When my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. And even so, it is well with my soul. Let us pray. Father God, may we sing these words. May we sing them truthfully. Because we have set our heart on you. Lord, may we not look to ourselves. May we not look to our own strength. But may we look to the one who has already overcome the world. To the one whose yoke is light. And who loves and who seeks. Not the righteous, but sinners like us. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you would, please stand as we uh, conclude by singing, O God, our help in ages past.